been great to be in God's house, uh, to hear these reports and what God is doing in people's lives at work, and Sandy's life and the lives of people in our church, uh, planning to go to Africa and serve the Lord, and that's exciting. Um, today I'm going to start a series on the book of Jonah. Uh, we talked about uh, Elijah before Easter and how the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Uh, the word of the Lord also came to Jonah, and he is the only prophet of God that I can find in Scripture that did not want to accept the task. And I mean, there were others that didn't want to do it, but he didn't really want to do it. And... Um, you know, you could say hashtag epic fail um, is probably where he was at. I recently read some excerpts from a book called The Book of Failures. Apparently this book is filled with all kinds of failures that people have made. For instance, the book mentions a guy named Arthur Pedrick who patented 162 inventions, but not one of them was ever taken up commercially. These inventions include a car that could be driven from the back seat, a golf ball that could be steered in flight, I was interested in that one, and a plan to irrigate the deserts of the world by sending a constant supply of snowballs from the polar region, that could be South Dakota, <laughs> through a massive network of giant pea shooters. According to the author, it was not a joke. Then there's the story of the most unsuccessful tourist who got off the plane during a refueling stop and spent three days in Los Angeles thinking he was in Rome. <laughs> One of the best excerpts I read was about an elderly lady in South London. She called a group of firefighters to rescue her cat from a tree. They arrived with impressive speed and carefully rescued her cat. The lady was so thankful she invited them in for tea. They had tea and received another round of thanks from the woman and they drove off waving goodbye. And as they backed out of her driveway, they drove right over her cat. <laughs> Most failures, though, are not funny. In fact, some failures we experience can leave lasting scars accompanied with unimaginable pain. A lot of people want to know where God is when we fail and fall into sin. But maybe it'd be a good idea if we switched the question around. Where do you want him to be when you fail? Many of us would say, I'd like him to be about a million miles away. But is that what we really want? Probably not. I think we'd want God to meet us where we are as a failure and give us a second chance. But is that who God is when I fail him? Or do we have a God that we really hope is a million miles away? Probably another question we should consider in regard to failure is who is God to me after I sin? What is going on in God's heart and mind when I fall flat on my face? When I disobey God, when I rebel against Him, when I cheat, when I lie, when I go through a divorce, 
when I blow up and lose my temper, when I get a DUI, when I abandon my virtue, when I view porn, when I have an affair, when I hate, gossip, or slander, when I get high, when I betray everything I know to be right and I make a mockery of my belief in God, who is God to me then? And I think that's an important question for us to consider because Jonah disobeyed the Lord. He sinned against God. He rebelled against God. He ran away from what God told him to do. You're thinking, why would he do such a thing? Well, he had reasons, just like we have reasons why we run away and do our own thing. And so really the first thing we see is Jonah's disobedience. He starts off with the word of the Lord, came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please let us not die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men feared greatly, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. He starts off that this is a great city, Nineveh. He tells us that in the opening verse. If you look down in chapter 3, uh, as well in verse 2, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh. And also in verse 3, it says it's a very important city. In chapter 4, verse 11, at the very end, the last two words of the book, it is a great city. And so we see it's a great city. It was founded by Nimrod, who was the evil grandson of Ham. 
or the great-grandson of Noah, who founded this city. Archaeologists tell us that it could have included as much as 350 square miles of land. You say, well, how much property is that? Well, you've heard about Babylon and how great Babylon was. Babylon was only considered maybe 200 square miles. And this was 350. Nineveh had a population of 600,000 to a million people. It was the greatest city uh, in its day. It tells us in chapter 4, verse 11, there was 120,000 young children in this city. Nineveh's architecture tells us that archaeologists have uncovered, uncovered great palaces and buildings. Uh, there's evidence that walls were 100 feet high and wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. The academics were also very good. There was a famous library that contained over 16,000 tablets, not iPads or Microsoft tablets. They weren't electronic tablets, they were clay tablets. But nevertheless, they had over 16,000 of these tablets or fragments of these tablets. There were lots of animals as well, and that was important because they could self-support themselves with food. If they were ever surrounded by an army or invaded by an army, they would try to cut off their food supply. They had plenty of land to grow food and plenty of uh, animals to feed themselves. It was a great city with material resources, but it had incredible spiritual need. It was a rising star of the Gentile nations. But the Assyrians were also cruel and fierce. They were a thorn in the sight of Israel. In 733 BC, under King Tilgath-Pileser, Assyria took the northern kingdom's land and carried the inhabitants into exile. And now you're beginning to see why did Jonah have a hard time going there? Well, when your people are attacked, I don't know about you, how do you feel when your people are attacked? Your city is attacked. Your family is attacked. The Assyrian king, also in 721, Shalmaneser besieged Israel's capital, Samaria, and it fell three years later. God was using Assyria to bring judgment on his people because they were in idolatry. And God was using Assyria to do that. And Jonah wasn't too happy with the assignment that I am going to go to these people who are destroying us and I'm going to preach the grace of God to them so they can give their lives to Christ. I want you to think about somebody in your life maybe that you're not too thrilled about. Maybe that you have issues with. And some people you have issues with, maybe you don't even know, but you just have issues with them because they don't look like you. And they don't act like you. They have tattoos, and as soon as you see a tattoo, you're turned off. As soon as you see some habit that they're involved in, you're turned off. And we can look at Jonah and say, yeah, what a terrible guy. But there's some similarities with Jonah with us. There are certain people we don't want to associate with. Well, I'm not going to be seen around them. Yeah, I see them coming through the doors of the church, but I'm not going to get close to them. Why? That's a Jonah syndrome. And Jonah had his reasons, and we have our reasons, because we become very judgmental and legalistic instead of reaching out to these people 
who need the love of God, who need the grace of God, like we do. And I think the reason that Jonah was struggling so much is, although he knew about the mercy of God up here, he did not understand, really, the mercy of God in his own life. And when we don't understand the mercy of God, we're not going to give mercy. If we don't realize we're a recipient of God's mercy, we're not going to be a mercy shower. So Jonah had good reasons why he disobeyed and rebelled against God. We list reasons why we disobey. It's too hard. How can God expect me to do that? I mean, look what everybody else is doing around me. They're doing that and God wants me to live a pure life? Yeah, he does. He does. So what does he answer? What do we do? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. All God wanted him to do was to receive his word with humility and obey it. Receive his word. Look what it says here in James. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He wanted Jonah to receive this word with humility and obey it. He goes on to say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He wanted Jonah to do the word of God. And that's what he wants us to do as well. But what was the assignment? He says, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Not a very popular idea when you know that everybody's living in sin and you're going to go preach against it. And also, they're the people that are destroying your people. It didn't seem like a very pleasant assignment. The character of Nineveh was it was evil, idolatrous pagans. Why should I share God's grace with them? Because of the character of God. Notice what it says. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Why? Because its wickedness has come up before me. God is saying the wickedness of Nineveh is before my face. And the character of God is more important than my reputation or your reputation. Because sin offends the holiness of God. It perverts what God intends. Sin mocks the laws of God. Sin corrupts the minds of men. It destroys the lives of people. Disobedience breeds disinterest and decline in Bible reading and prayer. And disobedience toward God brings discomfort in our lives where we begin to experience feelings of guilt and shame. And so what do we do with those feelings of guilt and shame when we disobey and rebel against the Lord? We do what Jonah did. Maybe not outwardly, but we do it inwardly. And here's what it says in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Look how it says it here in the ESV. Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them. And notice again, it says, away from the presence of the Lord. Now here's a question. Can we ever get away from the presence of the Lord? Is that even possible? Isn't God omnipresent? 
He's everywhere. Look at Psalm 139. If I go into hell, he's there. If I go up into heaven, he's there. He's saying, it doesn't matter where I go. If I go to the farthest part of the sea, even there, God is. So I can't get away from his presence. I don't think he's talking about getting away from the omnipresent God. He's talking about, I'm going to get away from the place where I worship God, where I serve God, and I'm going to get away from that. I'm going to get away from the word of God. I'm going to run away from the word of God. Because if I'm not going to do it, I have to go somewhere else where I can be comfortable. And so he rose to get away from the presence of the Lord. In Genesis 4.16, it talks about Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. God says to Israel in Jeremiah 23, 39, I will cast you out of my presence, not his omnipresence, but rather out of their spiritual privileges. Their temple was going to be destroyed. And God would stop sending prophets. Have we not taken great efforts in our day to get rid of the presence of God in our culture? The courts want to take out the Ten Commandments out of government buildings. It's illegal. Let's take prayer out of schools. Let's remove the presence of God from the schools. Is that what we've not done? Let's not pray at graduations in public schools because that's giving credence to God. And we have done everything we can. Let's fire coaches that they pray with their players before a game. And we have attacked the presence of God because we want to rebel against the word of God. J.C. Ryle said in his Thoughts for Young Men, he says, do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing you would not like God to hear. And write nothing you would not like God to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. And read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like God to have to say, what are you doing? See, Jonah found this ship in Joppa to head to Tarshish, and he probably viewed it as the providence of God. Even though he's running from God, hey, there's a ship, I'm on time, I've got money to pay a fare to go to Tarshish. God has worked it out. Because that's what we do, we rationalize and justify our behavior. When we run from the Lord, we do that. And he, I think, was doing the same thing. And even the weather was good initially. But then what happened in verse 4? He gets aboard. He pays the fare. In verse 4, the Lord sends a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship was threatened to break up. So much so that all the sailors were afraid and cried out to each other, to his own, or cried out each to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Who's in control of the weather? God is. Sometimes we blame things on jet streams and high and low pressures and all those things, but God is in control of the weather and he changed the weather to get Jonah's attention. Now, the question I have, if I had a question for the Lord, I'd be like, why did you pick Jonah? But then I say, why does he pick me? 
Why does he pick you? I think to show us that we can't do his work in our own strength and our own power. We need the Lord's strength and the Lord's power to do it. Jonah goes down below deck and he falls into a deep sleep. I'm guessing he must have had a my pillow. Because I mean, you know, he was sleeping so well. But isn't sleep a form of denial? And especially if we're depressed and we're running from God. You see, running from God is tiring business. And sleep can be a form of denial. You know, we need rest, yes. But nobody else was sleeping at this time. And I think he was trying to curb his guilt. Running from God can be tiring business. Look what it says the psalmist said in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's interesting that he was asleep because the Bible actually in the New Testament talks about being awake. And sometimes we are guilty of falling asleep spiritually. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5.14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This verse about waking up in Ephesians is not written to sinners. It's written to the church. Which means you and I can be guilty of falling asleep spiritually and losing our passion for God. It is possible to be a faithful church attender and yet be spiritually asleep. I can be religious but not righteous. We can experience spiritual compromise in our lives. Jonah's testimony was weakened to these pagan sailors. We can lose our spiritual conviction regarding sin. You know, some people can be involved in the service and they're on their phone and they're 100 miles away from anything happening in the service. Spiritually asleep. Or you could spend half the night up on Saturday night playing games that Sunday morning is time to take a nap. Spiritually asleep. And so there's many ways we can run from the Lord. In Revelation chapter 3, and if you want to take a moment to turn there, the angel of the church in Sardis writes these words, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and here's what it says. I know your works. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He's saying, I know you have work. But your work is not God's work. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then 
what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So here's the punchline. The purposes of God are revealed in his word. God reveals his purpose to Jonah. Jonah, here's my purpose for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against that city. Even though that may be not what you want to do, that's what I need you to do. Because the purposes of God go far beyond our little circle. The purposes of God are revealed in God's word. So here's the question and the application for us today. Am I fulfilling the purposes of God for my life? Am I fulfilling the purposes of God for my life? The purpose of God was for Jonah to share the message of God's grace and forgiveness to a pagan lost people. So here's the other application. Am I sharing God's message with the people he is placing in my path? I don't know who God is placing in your path who's lost. But what am I doing to intentionally share the gospel with them so that they can hear about God's grace and forgiveness? See, the purposes of God are clear in Scripture. And he gave that to Jonah. And I think we have, all of us have a little bit of Jonah in us. I know I do. I'm glad I don't have to stand up here and tell you the times that I've run, looking back in hindsight, from what God wants us to do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As we do, let me ask you a question. Is there anything in your life that would indicate that you are running from God? And his purposes for your life or even for your children or grandchildren? Are you, would you be scared or afraid if God called one of your children to the mission field? Said, I want your child, because I want to send them to a foreign field. Would you be willing to release them to do that? Or is that off limits to God? See, in a sense, that's running from God's purposes. What about your own life? And who God is placing around you, who is lost? And we don't know when the one or eternity. And God has placed you there to be an influence. If we are only using our career to make a buck, we need to rethink our career. 
God has placed you in your career and the people around you in your career to be a testimony for God, to point people to Jesus. But it takes courage. And we can be guilty, and I have been guilty, of running from the Lord and not being the witness at times that I needed to be because it takes courage. And maybe God would be speaking to you this morning about somebody, whether it's a neighbor or somebody that you come across in your career path, that you need to be the one because if you don't do it, who will? Who will? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been running from God in your life. Because you have things in your life that you know you have failed here, you failed here, you failed there. But who is God to you when you fail? He is a faithful, loving, forgiving Father who will forgive you if you genuinely repent and turn from your sin. He will forgive you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't unfriend us. Like so many do on Facebook. When we fail. He's there to pick us up. And if you don't have a personal relationship with God, I would invite you to ask him into your life. To make Jesus your Savior and your Lord. He died on the cross for us. And then to... Ask God, am I fulfilling the purposes that God has for me in my life? I know that God purposed for us to be in Huron, South Dakota. This morning, seeing the snow, I wondered why, but no. I, God is faithful. God is faithful in what he does. And I would just encourage you to surrender your life to the purposes of God and what he wants to do in your life. That means to humbly receive and obey his word. That's what he wants us to do. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.